You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to study the beautiful book of 1 Peter. We pray that you'll bless our discussion today and uh, enrich our hearts, Lord, with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we've already actually talked about the first three verses of that, of that chapter. So we're going to go on now to chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, and we always want to read the text. So um, let's have somebody read for us verses um, 4 through 6. Who would like to read? Verses 4 through 6 right here, and then verses 7 through 10 over there. Okay? All right. Go ahead. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone, cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Okay, very good. Thank you. All right, so in these, in these verses, um, we are continuing with um, Peter's building of the community, the sense of community, of who they are as a people. And he now turns to an illustration. Uh, he's used some other illustrations in, in chapter 1, he, he ended up talking about uh, the Word of God like, like, a, like a plant, and, and it abides forever. Uh, and then he, he, in chapter one verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he used the illustration of um, a, a, a breastfeeding baby and the milk of the Word. All right. Now he turns to another illustration. Uh, in my book, I titled this chapter... Uh, uh, what was it? Some mixed mixed metaphors, mixed metaphors, and some, something else. I don't recall exactly how I titled it. Um, and uh, there's the you know he has all, all these different metaphors, and so now he uses the idea of a building, right? And uh, speaks of Jesus as the as the chief cornerstone. Now, if you ever built any kind of building or any kind of house, the uh, what what's the most important is the corner. Of the house. Uh, now, why is that the most important? <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Well, it's a little. It's a little more than that. <laughs> Load bearing. Okay, is that everything else is placed in relationship to the corner of a building sets the building in three dimensions. This way, this way, and this way. Okay, so the corner is the like the the foundation, direction giving era uh, part of the of the building, and he says that there's a cornerstone. What is this cornerstone? Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. All right, and uh, he actually quotes the scripture about uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, so um, I've looked for where, where, you know, if there was a story, you know, you, you read sometimes the story that they had all the stones brought in for Solomon's temple and they, 
laid this one aside because it was the right size, but then when we kept, they were going to set the cornstone, that was the one that, that fit. But I haven't found that in some other, you know, like ancient text or something. But there is this, he's quoting from, uh, from the Psalms when he quotes this. And uh, he says that Jesus is the uh, chief cornerstone. Now, the, the interesting thing is he says that you and I are stones, uh, living stones. Now, that's an, that's an oxymoron. That's uh, something, you know, that's always dead and something <laughs> you call it living. Why in the world would he call us living stones? Well, he calls us living stones because Jesus is alive because he was raised from the dead. Again, like we said before, the importance of the resurrection, the resurrection is a big deal in the New Testament, and it's a big deal in 1 Peter, okay? So Jesus is this living stone. The foundation stone is placed by God, and we become part of the spiritual house. But we notice in this passage that there's a, um, there's a conflict, isn't there? There's two different groups of people. Who are these two different groups of people? The obedient and the disobedient, all right? How else, how else could you say that? The ones who accepted the stone, the ones who rejected the stone, right? And uh, so that uh, especially shows up that they rejected the stone, okay? So he sa it says, um, so the honor, verse 7, is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, right? As they, what, what does your translation say? The end of verse 8. And to which they were appointed. Yeah. Mine says, as they were destined to do. All right. What do you do with that? Are some people predestined to be lost? No. You guys are good Armenians. <laughs> you know, an Armenian is somebody who believes in free will. <laughs> named after a guy named Arminius, Jacob Arminius. Yeah, we are, our tradition is Armenian, that we have free will. But we need, we need a little better you know, uh, argument than just saying, no, that's not what it means. <laughs> God knew that they were going to choose. God knew that they were going to choose, okay. Any other ideas? Belief has its consequences. Okay. All right. And unbelief has its consequences. We're going down the that's a good path to go down. We're going down a good path. All right. Peter does a play on words here. Okay. If you go back to um, verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am, I am what? I am laying in Zion a stone. Okay. Now, the, the Greek word for this, I'm going to write the Greek word up here, and then I'll, I'll put the English transliteration, and then I'll put the English translation. Okay. So in case you like any of this kind of stuff, the Greek word is this word here, tithimi, all right? And in English, we would spell it like this. That's a long E. We'd spell it like that. Now, what does this word mean? It means to put or to place. Now, this word is used twice in the passage. I already told you one of them. What was it? Yeah, verse 6. To lay a cornerstone. Okay? He lays the cornerstone. We'll put over here cornerstone. That's not part of this word, but that's what he does. He lays a cornerstone. Where else is this used? What? Nope, it's not believed. What's that? Elect, it's not that either. Destined. Verse, it's verse 8, right? All right. So both of these have to do with placing something. 
Okay? So here's the play on words. All right? He laid down a stone, and kind of like our brother back here said, the way you relate to the stone places you in a certain location. All right? So to which they were placed, they were placed because of their own choices, because they chose to disbelieve. Follow that? Does that make sense? You want to ask a question? Ask a question. Don't be afraid to ask a question. All right? Let, let, let's, let, let me say that again. Okay? God placed a stone, a cornerstone. Now the question is, how will you relate to that cornerstone? Okay? God has placed the results of what's going to happen. You get to choose whether you build on the cornerstone or you reject the cornerstone. Right? Now God has already destined, shall we say, he's, he said, this will be the result of your choices. Okay? Uh, God has set up the law of gravity. Right? And uh, you and I work with the law of gravity all the time. Right? Now, if you sort of reject the law of gravity and you go up on top of a tall building and you jump off and you ask God to save you, you'll have a result. Yeah, you're, 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 you're destined. Yeah, you, you see, he, he didn't choose for you to jump off the building. What he chose is the law of gravity. He set up the law of gravity and said, this is the way it works. Right now, you can you can take it for one or not. Now, the the other kind of laws that we have are like laws of inertia, right? And many people, when they drive a car, they don't realize that they have lots of uh, potential energy uh, now built up or kinetic energy going in. And so, if they suddenly, you know, swerve and hit somebody, your car is going to get smacked. Or if it like has happened to me once or twice, a deer runs out in front of you. A suicide deer, and you know, and smacko, you know, he hits your car, and it's not good for the car, but it's very bad for the deer, right? So this is a this play on words is in verse six. So let me let me let me say it this way, okay? Behold, I am placing in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse eight. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were placed. As they were placed. They, they were placed because they, placed, they made a choice to reject the stone. If they had accepted the stone, they wouldn't have been placed in this, in this section of, of uh, stumbling. Okay, so it's kind of interesting that he, he, he makes this little play on words, okay? The religious leaders reject the cornerstone. The play on words is laying or setting or placing in verses 6 and 8. All right, so remember, he's building them, he's building these people as a, as a, um, as a community of faith. And boy, he just lays it on how beautiful it is to be a Christian. You know, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you belong to God, you're God's people, and you received mercy, Right? You didn't used to be called God's people, now you are. You hadn't received mercy, now you have. It's just, you know, really, really beautiful the way he, you know, paints this picture of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, he's helping them to see how really valuable uh, it is. Now, he now shifts, he's, 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 he's uh, now let, let's stop right here and see if there's any questions you want to ask or, comment, or comments you want to make. Yeah. Does this allude to more to their uniqueness that he mentioned or insinuated early on? Yeah, well, so what he's done is he's taken, th these are like ideas from the Old Testament, right? The, the Israelites were God's chosen people. He, the, he's actually alluding to texts in the Old Testament. So he takes the promises made to Israel and he says, they are yours. As, as a Christian, they belong to you as well. You're part of the chosen people of God. Yes. Uh, this really is established for all men what Christ did for them. Uh, only unbelief can keep them from experiencing it. Yeah, so... You, yeah, I mean, you, you, you have to, you get to choose what you do with the cornerstone. There's no, there's no middle ground. Well, I'll just wait and see. <laughs> there's no middle ground. You're either with Jesus or you're against him, you know. 
And uh, in fact, the, uh, as Ellen White puts it, the, the entire universe is on display at the cross. What you do with the cross tells what happens to you. You know, The uh, character of every person is shown at the cross from the youngest to God himself. You know, is shown at the cross. And Satan revealed his true character at the cross in putting to death the Son of God. All right. So this is all these benefits of, of being a Christian. So if you ever get this discouragement, like, you know, is it really worth it for me to stay a Christian and to stick with it? Read First Peter. You'll encourage your heart. Now, I'm not kidding. You know, because sometimes you can go through some trials and, you know, you get in the church and there's people that are kind of like, why are these people mean, you know? Why are they mean to me? And, you know, you, you get hurt. I mean, when I visit people who have, who have left the church, there's usually a story. Somebody hurt them, right? Uh, and we have lots of members who don't attend the church. Now, I'm, talk, I'm preaching to the choir here because I know you guys are like the, the ones who like, you know, go to church all the time and you're like leaders in the church and stuff like that, you know? Uh, to my mind, the church is a, uh, is a rock tumbler. Now, has anybody here uh, had a rock tumbler and done semi-precious stones? Okay, sister back here. All right. Tell us about a rock tumbler. What, 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 what do you do with a rock tumbler? Okay, so you put grit in there. And then, what, then what else do you add? Well, you got the stones you want to polish, right? You got stones you want to polish. Okay, is there anything else besides the grit and the stones? Some kind of water, right? Some kind of liquid. Is that right? Or yeah, okay. So then, what do you do? Okay, so you 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 lock it up, you seal it, and you you got a, yours an electric one, I assume. Yeah, it would be terrible if it wasn't electric. You turn it on. You put that in your bedroom with you, or no? Where do you put it? Away, away, out in the garage someplace, right? Or down in the basement, you know? You turn that thing on, you leave it running for a week. And, and then you turn it off, and you get all that gook and gunk out of there, and you go over and you wash it in the sink, and what's, what do your stones look like? Shiny and smooth. What did that? The grit. All that grit rubbing on them for all that time. The church is a rock tumbler. God is rubbing off my rough edges and your rough edges. And guess what? There'll be a little heat when that happens. Sometimes you have to say you're sorry. Sometimes you have to go and reconcile with somebody. Sometimes they need to say they're sorry to you. Don't be surprised. The church is a rock tumbler. God is using that church to take off your rough edges. What if you stay away? What's going to happen to your rough edges? They're going to stay. They're not going away, right? So there's a great danger in staying away from church. A great danger in that you, know, you don't get those, you don't become the shiny stone God wants to make you, right? So that's why you got to be built on the stone. You got to stick together. Hebrews tells us, don't, don't stop meeting together, right? Don't stop meeting together. All right, now let's keep going. Now he shifts to a new section, chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12, right? And this section is relating to people inside and outside the church. How do you relate to people inside the church, but particularly to people outside the church? How should you relate to them? And he talks about government leaders. This is counsel to the entire church. Then he talks to the servants who are, um, the masters may not be Christians, then he has at the very middle of this thing, he kind of walks in and walks back out. We call that a chiastic structure. The center is the most important. And that's where Jesus is the example. It's the central truth of this whole section. It's at the end of chapter 2. Then he talks about wives and husbands and how they relate to each other. And then brotherly love, counsel to everybody. So you see it's a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So A, B, C, B, A. We call it a chiastic structure. And the big point is right in the middle. All right, so we want to read this section. We want to read this section a bit. We'll, we'll start in verse 11. And uh, he, this is kind of a transition section. It, it helps us to, to move into the second section. 
Um, but we'll read first uh, verses 11 and 12. Who wants to read that for us? Verses 11 and 12. Yeah, Sister Bup here. I have the clear word. Okay. Friends, I appeal to you as pilgrims and strangers in this world, don't do the evil things your body wants you to do at the expense of your soul. Live such noble lives that your Gentile neighbors who falsely accuse you may one day give their hearts to God and rejoice with you when Christ returns. Okay. It's uh, kind of kind of interpretive, yeah. So sort of interprets it, yeah. Um, like here, here it is in the ESV. It says, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners." It was pretty close, but but it was certain a uh, uh, interpretation of it. Yeah, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, glorify God on the day of visitation could be taken either to refer, like you said, that they'll accept Christ, or it's like every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they accept or not. Okay, so again, he comes back to the same. He, see, he kind of comes back around, right? He, does, he rings the bells again. He comes back around and talks about how you relate to um, Gentiles around you. Now we want to see how he talks about for the government leaders in particular, verses 13 through 17. Who wants to read verses 13 to 17? We've got a sister over here. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And I go on to verse 17, through for 17. As, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as a servant of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Okay. Now, Peter never directly speaks to the emperor or the governors. Or those, so, so he's talking about now how Christians are going to relate to these folk. Okay. And what does he tell to do? How, how, how is he supposed to relate to them? Be obedient. be obedient? Yeah, he says be subject. All right, be subject. Now, this word is the word submission. Submit. All right? Submission is not a dirty word. <laughs> now, now, some people kind of think it is, but submission is not a dirty word. Submit means to place oneself under the leadership of someone else. Right? Jesus did this with his parents, believe it or not. Luke 2, verse 51. I want to just turn to Luke 2. It's kind of interesting the way that, keep your hand there in First Peter, but turn over to Luke 2. This is, this is the story, this is the conclusion of the story of Jesus in the temple. Remember the story? He goes with his parents, he's 12 years old, he goes with his parents to Jerusalem for the Passover, and when the Passover's over, his parents leave thinking that he's with them, but he's not. And it takes them three days to find him. And they find him in the temple, sitting, talking to the teachers. Now, when his parents get him away, his mother scolds him. Right? This is verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Uh, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, if your son said that to you, how would you respond? You, you'd probably take him by the ear and say, Young man, you can't say that to your mother. <laughs> Well, you would think that an angel came and told you you're going to get pregnant by God. Uh -huh. And then the angel went to Joseph and said, don't get rid of her because this is a special circumstance. That they should understand this. Yes. Yeah. That, that maybe they should, what, did they forget all of a sudden? But doesn't, but, but doesn't this sound a little cheeky? You know what I mean when I say cheeky? Yeah. Uh, okay, cheeky means... Uh, Sort of arrogant, sort of talkbackish. Yeah, yeah. Does, doesn't this kind of sound like that? So Luke 
Luke doesn't want you to get the wrong idea. So verse 52, 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. All right. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God. Amen. Right. So Luke, immediately after Jesus says this, he, he doesn't want you to get the wrong idea that Jesus is some kind of arrogant, you know, oh, you guys should know where I was. <laughs> you should have known that I was going to be in my father's house. He says he went down to Nazareth and he was submissive. It's the same word. To be subject, to submit to. Yes. I, I've heard it said uh, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You do not know that I was about my father's business, which implies a spiritual Oh, okay. But the other way may not do. Uh, the other version. Let me see. The New King James. Yeah. Says that. Luke, King James. Luke, Luke 2, Luke 2, verse 51. No, 49. 49. Why do you seek me? Did you not know that in my father, I must be in my father's house? Okay, verse 49. Seek me. All the words you don't know. With them. Hmm. That's what I have. In the King, New, New King James. I'd have to look at some other... I'd have to look do some more of it. See, uh, this, this has to do with something we call textual criticism. Um, we have thousands of manuscripts in the New Testament. All right, thousands. And no two of them are exactly, exactly alike. Okay? You say, why is that? Well, if I gave you one page from the Bible and I had all of you copy it, do you suppose they'd all be exactly alike? No. Some of you would drop out one word, you might flip a word, you might spell it differently, you know. So the people who copied the Bible, that's what happened. I think the amplification crisis discovering that father in connection with the father, he's trying to portray it a little bit to his parents in there somehow. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that must be in my father's house? Actually, it's more like a, I must be in my father's house. King James Version is the same thing. I must be about my father's business. I've never heard about him being in, a, in the house. Yeah, I've never heard the house. That's completely foreign oh. to me. Oh, okay, yes. So did you not know that in the... Oh, I see, yeah. Actually, there's no word. It's It's, it's a supplied word. That in the... Things of my father is as necessary for me to be. So it doesn't say my house, but it depends on how you take it. It's it it's kind of leaves it open. Probably in your King James Bible, you'll see that the word business or the word house is in italics. Yes. yes. Yeah. That means it's a supplied word. Yes. Yeah. And so there's a bit of interpretation there. It must be in the in the things of my father. I think. Uh, I think that uh, Mary, who maybe thought that Jesus was a little more than just a human being, ah. got, got the connection a little bit. I don't know about Joseph. Yeah, yeah. So we, we don't want to lose the rabbit here. What, we, what, we're, what we're saying is that Jesus also submitted. He submitted to his parents. So submission is not a dirty word. All right. So Jesus first, uh, Peter first says that you're supposed to submit to government leaders. Okay, so look at this. Jesus did this with his parents. Each of us has someone over us in life. Isn't that true? You all, everybody's got a boss. <laughs> everybody's got a boss. So, you know, don't be surprised that you have to get along with your boss. You know, or get along with different people that you have to submit to. Okay, so Peter tells us how to relate to those over us in various cultural settings. He's not just going to talk to us as a whole church about how we relate to um, to government leaders, he's going to talk about the nitty-gritty of, of family life in the home and in the relationships, okay? So Peter tells us how to relate to those over us in various cultural settings. Now, this is an important point. The culture is not what is inspired. Greco-Roman culture was not inspired. But Peter's counsel is inspired, Right? It tells us how to relate to leaders in these different cultural settings. Now, this is where people are going to differ sometimes. Okay? There are some people that are going to say, the way he puts it there is the way we're supposed to do it today in our setting. 
Other people say, well, no, our setting's a bit different, and maybe we should do it. I'm not going to fight with you over this. <laughs> okay. I'll let you think about it. But Peter's counsel is inspired, right? And uh, we'll, we'll have some more to say about that as we go along. All right, so the servants, we're now going to come to the passage about servants. Now, these are household servants. It's not using the word slave, though the terms are sort of synonymous. These were people who were either hired servants or maybe more likely were people who were uh, slaves in the household. Were there Christians who had slaves? Yes. yes, there were. There were Christians who had slaves. If you want to see an interesting study on that, you, you studied the book of Philemon. It is the Apostle Paul writing to a Christian slave owner, sending back his runaway slave. Uh, and it's amazing. Maybe another year I can teach that book. It's, it's an amazing piece of rhetoric that actually undermines the Greco-Roman slave system. Okay, so now we're going to just talk about the servants here. And we're in chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 18. And we want to go um, through verse um, 20. 18 to 20. Who would like to read verses 18 to 20? Okay. From the MLT. Okay. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. Okay. It's an interesting translation. Let's hear another translation because this is kind of an important passage. And uh, somebody have the uh, King James or New King James? Yeah, this sister over here. Okay. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering, wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. Okay, all right. So um, th this is a uh, kind of a, a passage that sort of gets under people's skin a little bit uh, because he says uh, that you're supposed to be submissive even to the ones who are crooked. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> is Peter telling him to do the wrong things? The, the crooked master says, go rob a bank. Is he supposed to go rob a bank? You know? All right. So the servants are household servants. They are told to submit to the good and kind masters and even to the crooked ones. You're like, boy. Why to the crooked? Well, it is not an approval of evil, but respect for the leadership role that they're in. You know, that they show respect. Right? Peter follows this up with a reference to unjust treatment of the servant. Now, here's an important point. I've underlined it. I put it in a different color. Peter never separates the language of submission from the language of justice. Okay? Peter never separates the language of submission from the language of justice, wherever he talks about that. Right? He talks about doing good. He talks about doing what's right. He talks about the leaders uh, disapproving of that which is evil. All right? So there is a moral system that God has set up. All right? And uh, I had a slide. I should have put it in here. I'll draw it over here. Instead, you see, in, in Peter's concept of power, everybody has a relationship with God. So the ultimate power is God. He's the one who sets the rules for the universe, okay? So we'll just say down like this, okay? And he gives power to leaders, okay? So the leaders are now supposed, they have two things they're supposed to do. Here's the good over here, and here's the evil over here. They're supposed to commend that which is good. They're supposed to punish that which is evil. All right. That's the way power is supposed to work. All right. 
Power is given for fulfilling the will of God to commend and to punish the good versus the evil. What happens sometimes is it gets mixed up, and the leader is not a good leader, and the leader, instead of commending that which is good, commends the evil. And the leader doesn't commend the good, he punishes it. Okay? So what happens when that occurs? Well, this is where the good servant is punished for doing that which is good. Right? Now that's not fair. That's not right. God is the final arbiter. Okay? So what's going to happen to the leader who does, doesn't fulfill his role? Judgment. Judgment. Yeah, he has to face God. Okay? And God is now going to affirm the good person when the leader is punishing him. Okay? So everybody has a relationship with God, and power is given actually for service. That's kind of Peter's idea about power. Power is given for service. And uh, these people that do the opposite of that are going to have to face God in the judgment. Okay? So... Yes. Yes, it applies in abusive situations. That was the question. Now, is Peter affirming, this is kind of your question, I think, is Peter affirming staying in an abusive situation? No. no. Now, his situation is that the person doesn't have any way out of the abusive situation. There are situations in the, in the ancient world where they have no recourse, they have no out. Okay. Today, in our society, in our free society, you can get out. And we should never affirm abuse. We should never say it's okay and stay in an abusive relationship. That's making a person a doormat. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So we have to be clear here that our situation is somewhat different than their situation in the past. So some people might say, well, then Peter doesn't have anything to say to us. No, not true. Peter does. First of all, he sets this moral compass. He says, you know, God is the arbiter of all these things. And secondly, there are people who don't have a way out. You know, it's wrong, you know, but they don't have a way out. Is there a word from the Lord to them? Yes. Yes. Peter has a word from the Lord from them, for them. That is that God is going to justify them in the end and punish those who have been doing abusive things. Now, again, I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not affirming abuse. Abuse is wrong, always is, always has been, and we should speak clearly about it and help people get out of abusive situations. Okay? But Peter has still a word for somebody who's stuck and there's nobody that's coming to their aid. God is going to come to their aid. Yeah, brother. Yeah. And you suffer the consequences, exactly. Yeah. You suffer for doing that which is good. And, um, you know, he, he's kind of, um, and I think the Greco Roman world people were a bit more, um, they were a bit more tough minded than we are. He's like, if you do what's wrong and they punish you, why are you complaining? Buck up. Stop, stop complaining about it because you're not even being punished for, because you did what was wrong. Yes, over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Joseph's story is interesting and instructive in this kind of setting. Yeah. He. He. Of course. When he was young, you get a sense that he was a little bit kind of naive about his brothers and, you know, telling them these dreams. <laughs> it, it sounds kind of like, boy, what, you know, yeah, how to irritate your brothers, you know. <laughs> he doesn't seem to quite get it. But I will tell you, the whole Joseph narrative is controlled by those dreams. It's really interesting. You know, the whole arc of where that story is going is all linked up with those dreams. And that this is God's hand guiding his people. It's, it's, those are great stories. Genesis, wonderful stories. So what this indicates is that Peter is not affirming evil or injustice. 
but is telling the Christian servant how to act in an unjust setting. The submission does not include doing wrong things. Don't do the wrong things. Stay with the right. Stay with what's true. You'll be punished if you don't do, you know, if a wrong person tells you to do wrong and you refuse, you'll be punished. But you will be affirmed by God. Okay? So, the, if some of your Bibles will have the word grace there. This is a gracious thing, or this is grace with God. Actually, the, the, the Greek word is charis, in, or teres, and um, so people say, oh, this is grace from God. Actually, in this particular context, this word charis, or grace, is actually used, the use of the term is secular meaning, which is, means a favorable response, which parallels the term credit in verse 20. So let, let's, let's look at verse, these verses again, see? Starting in verse uh, 18, he says, um, this is, a, my translation in verse 19 says, this is a gracious thing. Actually, it's, it's better to say, this is a, 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 a favorable, this is a, a favorable or credit when, and then it says, conscious of God or conscience. You have the word conscience there? Yeah, or mine says mindful of God. Um, the, the, the Greek word is, is synesis, which uh, is often translated conscience, which seems kind of weird here at this place. Uh, what do you think of as a conscience? What's the conscience? Right and wrong? The spirit? Like, you mean like the Holy Spirit? Sense of right and wrong. Of right and wrong. Yeah, we often think of conscience as an internal moral compass, right? It says, no, you shouldn't look at that. No, don't go there. <laughs> do that. That's the right thing to do. You know, we think of it as an internal moral compass. In a number of contexts in the ancient world, that's not how they thought of it. Conscience was not an internal moral compass. It was actually external. It was being conscious of the values of the values of your primary group. All right. So it's not an internal conscience, it's an external conscious, consciousness. So this is why they say mindful of God. Okay? So here's what's happened to the Christians. Remember, he's still building their sense of community. And he says to them, you now are conscious of God and his moral requirements. Right? You are now marching to a different drummer. That drummer is in heaven. Right? And... The people that you used to go with have their own beat that they're making. And of course, in today's world, it's quite a beat, isn't it? And uh, they have their own beat that they're going to. And in chapter 4, we'll see they're running to parties, and they're drinking, and they're doing all kinds of you know, debauchery and all kinds of evil stuff. That's the world's drumbeat, right? Now, Peter says, you, you're listening to a different drum. It's the heavenly one. You're conscious of God's moral requirements for the world. You have become conscious of God. See? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, it's an awareness of. Probably the the term awareness isn't isn't quite strong enough uh, because aware is uh, sure I you know I know that the speed limits I'm aware that the speed limits 55 or something. But, if I push the lead, you know, if I got a lead foot, you know, I'm going to 65 or 70, and then those lights come on behind, you know, and you know the he, the the uh, the officer applies the law, right? So it's not just being aware of, but also, I guess, should I say, buying into and, and 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 accepting that. Okay. So now, with that understanding, you see, we can kind of translate it this way: For this is a credit when you are conscious of God. And you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? See, that's the parallel word. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a favorable response in the sight of God. Well, this is something where God is going to commend you. This is, you find favor in his sight. Did you ever play King Asuerus and Queen Esther when you were little? No, you didn't. Oh my goodness! My kids used to go and get the the uh, the the thing you beat the eggs with. Uh, 
The whisk, yeah. And then they put cotton, you know, cotton balls inside of it. Now that becomes Azuerus's golden scepter, you know. <laughs> Hold out the golden scepter to Esther. She comes in, you know, and Azuerus sees her. She's beautiful, you know. And, of course, she has risked her life to come in between before the king. So, obviously, she didn't just come for no good reason. There's something on her mind. So she comes and he says, Queen Esther, what is your... What is your wish? It will be granted to you up to half my kingdom. And she says, I found favor in your eyes. Let's see, that's the fine favor in my, your eyes. If I found favor in your eyes. Please come to suffer with Haman. Now, you know, curiosity is, is really gets to men, you know. So he's like, obviously, she didn't risk her life to invite me to dinner. There's something on her mind. That night he goes, but he, she, she puts him off again. Boy, oh boy, if you haven't built up the curiosity of the king, he can't sleep that night, right? It's a great story, Esther. I love the story of Esther. Queen Esther, yeah, finds favor. So it finds credit with God. It finds a favorable response from God. What are we doing for time? I heard that clock go off, 3 o'clock. All right, so conscience here is not the inner moral compass we think of. It refers to being conscious of the standards of judgment of your primary group. Here is God's standards, being conscious of that of that. Uh, his, his standards of judgment. Remember, God is at the pinnacle of power, right? Mm -hmm. So now we come to the example of Jesus, verses 21 to 25, all right? So we want to read this section. Who would like to read it? This is a powerful little section. 21 to 25? First uh, Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. All right, I see his sister, your hand back there. 21 to 25. 21 to 25. For even hereunto were, were we ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Okay. Beautiful passage. Does this remind you of any passage? An Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. This is actually a meditation on Isaiah 53. But it doesn't have the same order as Isaiah 53, right? He alludes to verses in Isaiah 53, but does not follow the order of the text in Isaiah. He actually has, he, he alludes to verses, the first one he, he alludes to is verse 9. Isaiah 53, 9. Then he alludes to Isaiah 53, 4. And then verse 12. And finally, Isaiah 53, verse 6. You say, Peter, why do you get it mixed up? Why are you not putting it in the right order like Isaiah? All right, there's a reason why. He is following Jesus' steps from his trial to the cross. He is following Jesus' steps from his trial to the cross, being beaten, being reviled, spitting on him, and being crucified. Right? So he's walking to the cross with Jesus. And guess what? He says that Jesus is your example. Now, he makes a statement here that's found nowhere else in the New Testament. Christ suffered for you. I said, what? Christ suffered for you? That's not found anywhere else in the New Testament? Not in those words. Now, of course, the rest of the New Testament tells you about Jesus' death on the cross. It describes it. It shows it. The Apostle Paul will often say, Christ died for you. But he never says, Christ suffered for you. Now, that's really something to ponder. Christ suffered for you. And when you suffer, you're following in the steps of Jesus. Right? When you suffer for doing what's right, right, you're following in the steps of Jesus. It's really an amazing passage. Now, what's really incredible here is there's four things that he did not do, 
There's two things that he did do, and then there's four things that happened to you and to me. Okay? What are these four things? Four things Christ did not do. He did no sin. No guile was found in his mouth. He was not reviling, and he was not threatening. How did he do it? How did he do it? I mean, when you and I, I don't know if this is your experience, but I've, I have found it. If I'm tired or if I'm hungry, I'll get upset. I mean, it's terrible, you know? Getting upset with somebody just because you're hungry or you're tired or you're frustrated. And you, yeah, and you say some words that you regret, right? Ever done that? Me too, me too. I used to tease my grandmother when she would have hot flashes in her 90s. Oh, in her hot flashes. And she, her comeback would, God is going to get you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and he certainly did. But I'm glad that Jesus did not think that yeah. during this circumstance. Yeah. Because then we would be lost. I'm, I mean, it's amazing. You know, they were reviling him. He doesn't revile in return. Now, if you've never studied how crucifixion worked, oh my goodness. It was like the most terrible way to die the Romans could think of. Actually, it was invented by the, by the Persians or maybe somebody before them. And you lost very little blood when you were, when you were crucified. And uh, you were exposed to the elements, to insects that would bore into your body. And, you know, you, you, you just were left to rot on this, on this cross. And uh, the Romans usually did it by, by removing everybody, the, uh, all the clothes. You know, so you were naked, you were ashamed. That was their whole point. They were shaming you in the front of the entire world. The idea they were a, a honor-shame society where you sought that which honors you and your family and you avoid that which brings shame to you and your family. So the Romans in crucifying people were like, if you do what this guy did, that's what's going to happen to you. So they were intimidating the, you know, the populace and, uh, you know, keeping them from doing things. So this was amazing, you know. Now, these two, these first two are, are kind of statements that are kind of like summaries. He did no sin, no guile was found in his mouth, like a summary of who Jesus is. These ones here are like ongoing. He was not reviling. He was not threatening. They say, how did Jesus do this? All right, the key is found, uh, well, okay, summary statements. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Presents present and imperfect, indicating ongoing actions. Okay. Here's the two things he did. He entrusted himself, and he bore our sins. All right. Now, this entrusted ourselves is kind of the, the key idea. Let me show you. There's a Greek word behind this. I'll put the Greek word up here. I'll put the English transliteration, and then I'll tell you what it means. All right. The Greek word is padadidomi. And the English translation is like this. It's a long O. All right. What does this word mean? The basic meaning is to hand over. It's a verb. But it has three derived meanings. Okay, it means to entrust. It means to pass on. Pass on, we add the word tradition. And it also means to betray. Now somebody says, how can the same word mean entrust and betray? <laughs> All right, so when you go to the bank, you hand over your money to the bankers. Right? You are entrusting them with it. You expect that they'll invest it properly and you can get your money out when you go there. Right? When you pass on tradition, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the term this way. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the first verse, eight verses. He says, what I received, I pass on to you. I entrusted it to you. I, I, I handed on the tradition. Betray is what, is what Judas did. Right? Judas did this in the Gospels. You read about this. And it's all using this word. Now, Peter uses this word to refer to Jesus entrusting himself to the Father. 
Now, the Gospels use this word to refer to Judas betraying Jesus. Now, in my book, I said, when Judas came to the Garden of Gethsemane to betray Jesus, he was too late. He was too late because Jesus had already handed himself over to the Father. He said, not my will, but your will be done. So now it didn't matter what Judas did. It didn't matter what anybody else did. He had handed himself over to the Father. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Remember, justice. He never separates the concept of submission from the concept of justice. He entrusted himself to God. That is the secret of Jesus' endurance in that setting. You see, he, he endured because he had entrusted himself to God. Whatever came to him, God was certainly going to make it right. Now, the other thing he did was he bore our sins. What are we doing for time? Oh, we still got five minutes. Great. Now, this is surprising because at, at this point, see, before this, he said, to this you were called, to follow in Jesus' steps, right? Are you a good guy or a bad guy when you, when you, when, when you hear those words? Follow in Jesus' steps. Good guy. You're, you're, you're one of the good guys. You're following Jesus. But now, when he gets to verse, what is it, 24? He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Oh, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Now you're a bad guy. <laughs> it's your sins that took him to the cross, right? Now, Peter kind of puts it, remember, he's walking with Jesus to the cross. So he says, you follow Jesus. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, right? So you're following Jesus means you're living like Jesus. But when he gets to the cross... That's where he died for our sins. Okay? So Peter is following that, that, how should I say that, that story of Jesus going to the cross. But the way it applies to you and me is first we have to have our sins forgiven at the cross so that we are enabled to now follow Jesus in his steps, right? Okay? So that's why there's this funny thing where he started off with you a good guy and now you changed to a bad guy. Because really we start off as the bad guys and we get turned into good, good people by Jesus. All right? So, handing over. There's the, there's the uses, the terms, entrust, pass on, and betray. Three points about handing over. Jesus entrusts himself to God. Judas betrays him to his enemies. Jesus entrusts himself to God, who judges justly against the unjust treatment. And the imperfect tense here indicates that Jesus continues to entrust himself to God. He bore our sins. He is as standard and our sacrifice. So the uh, two actions of Christ are at the heart of the structure of this entire section, the present to the Christian uh, Jesus role. He is our standard. He's the one that we're supposed to follow, and he's our sacrifice. So you have the sudden turn, the sin bearer, us as sinners. He actually alludes to these different passages. Deuteronomy 2 is about... The tree, anyone hung on a tree, it's cursed. And uh, that's, he's referring to the cross in this case. Right? Um, the purpose of his sacrifice is that we would die to sin and live for righteousness. Die to sin and live for righteousness. So a change in our life. So, the problems and the solutions. This is, I think, no, it's not quite my last slide, close. Um, Christ bore our sins. Christ healed our wound. We were returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. That's good stuff. You know, him taking care of us, drawing us to God. So, what are the takeaways? The crucial question in life is how we respond to Jesus Christ. That's the cornerstone issue, huh? Accepting him is the way of life. Rejecting him is the way of death. There's no middle ground, really. It is a deep privilege to be a Christian. It is a deep privilege to be a Christian. We are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, the people of God who have experienced his mercy. Don't forget that. You see, we need, we need in our own life this building of community that Peter's talking about. You know, we need to remember it's a great privilege to be a Christian. Submission to leaders is our calling as we live for Christ, following in his steps. He submitted. He went through the cross. You and I are called to do the same. Entrusting our life to God is the secret to bearing suffering with calmness and gentleness. Now that's part of that sanctification that's the work of a lifetime, isn't it? Yeah, okay. 
Entrusting our life to God is the secret to bearing suffering with calmness and gentleness. Jesus is our Savior, our example, the great shepherd, and the guardian of our souls. Tomorrow, we will take and look at uh, chapter 3. I recommend that you read chapter 3. It's uh, the most challenging chapter in the book. And there's two passages that we'll especially focus on, but um, you'll probably figure out what they are. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful book of 1 Peter and 1 Peter 2 and the example of Jesus. Help us to submit to his wonderful love and know his power in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.